specter is haunting the European energy system, the specter of the resource man. He is transforming that system in his own image, that of, and I quote Yolanda Stringers here, the male-dominated industries of engineering, economics, and computer science. The resource man is able to sustain this image because in his endeavors to hold the system into the age of digital modernity and the post-fossil future, resource men from across those sectors flock to his aid by signing up for pilot projects and pioneering the latest technologies. But is the resource man running up against the limits of his man's world? Hello, folks, and welcome to the first episode of the Social Life of Energy podcast. The other day, I was listening to LeBron James's grounding baritone meditations on Focus on the Calm app, and I thought to myself, hey, I have a voice like that. I could be a soothing presence for those who work on energy and who are anxious about what these trying and uncertain times will mean for sustainable energy. So subscribe to this podcast, wherever you get your podcasts, to tune in whenever these come out. I'll be mixing new content with some of the golden oldies that you liked from the past year, such as today's episode. Enjoy, and as always, let me know what you think at sociallifeofenergy at subsec.com. Back to the resource man. All the way back in 2003, Joy Clancy and Ulrike Hör reminded us that our ideologies of gender equality notwithstanding, there are significant differences in how men and women in the global north relate to energy. It seems they were voices in the desert though, because over a decade later in 2016, Lisa Turing would voice the energy industry's consternation that they forgot half the population. Now in 2020, Attention to gender is still not a mainstay of Northern energy research and policy. Today's episode is part of a longer series on lessons from the history of anthropology or the future of renewable energy. In it, I review an historical moment in the development of my native discipline, anthropology, and I see what lessons we might draw for our understanding of the social life of energy. Check the links in the podcast notes for a link to the whole series. Now, let's jump back in time. Considered efforts to include women's perspectives in the anthropological discipline, you know, actually talk and listen to women during fieldwork, began in earnest in the 1970s. Initially, efforts focused primarily on getting women heard. Up until that point, it was mostly male anthropologists and their male interlocutors painting pretty male-centric pictures of culture. Quite soon though, gender emerged as a new research agenda to understand how people had made sense of the biological differences between men and women. While early gender research tended to focus on the shared experiences of the subjugation of women worldwide, later research was compelled to face instead the diversity of women's lives and the differences in perspectives and needs across the world. With every new wave, feminist anthropologists developed new critical sensitivity to how knowledge was made, who was asked questions, who got to speak for whom, and whose worldview was being questioned. 
or not. In one article hot off the presses, Karina Stendhal, Marta Talevi, and Hega Westcock follow solar presumers in the UK and Norway. Yes, Norway. Nothing can stop solar, not even 18-hour Oslo nights. They follow these prosumers in the process of getting their photovoltaic panels, from researching the possibilities, to getting and installing them, to finally living with them. Classic gender differences showed up along the way, such as affinity with technology or aesthetic appraisals of the panels, as well as the gendered division of the household into maintenance and daily housework. That last division led men to be involved with the installation and the monitoring of the panels, while it was up to women to adapt appliance use to the frivolous nature of the northern sun. To understand this largely stereotypical division of labor, invoking Mars and Venus will not do, though. It is not a direct result of masculinity or femininity. Instead, Stendhal and her colleagues make clear social networks and professional expertise mediate the kind of gendered role each of the partners might play in the household. This point is neatly illustrated by the counterexample of two women who were professionally active in the energy sector. In virtue of the connections, knowledge, and opportunities it afforded them, it was they, not their male partners, who took a leading role in the acquisition phases. Gender, in other words, is entangled with other characteristics in our societies, including the distribution of wealth or the spaces that we inhabit. Let's look at a few more examples. In a survey of women's involvement in solar and wind plants in northern Germany from 2015, Cornelia Frauner notes that, in terms of shares and ownership and the amount invested in the plant, as well as, as the number of leadership positions in the association, women score decidedly lower than men. An explanation of this difference hinges on the material differences between men and women. Women have less capital available to them, even less in comparison to their husbands, a gap in part motivated by the tax system. In terms of their involvement with decision-making, unpaid volunteering generally follows longer involvement with the sector in question. And again, it's mostly men working in the energy sector. Lisa Turing's article from 2016 gives us one final example of how our gender roles in the energy sector depend on how we are situated in other domains of life. She tracked families in the process of deciding on home energy and efficiency renovation. Her point is this, what people do in the house gives them a perspective on what to do with the house. I quote, each family member referred to their practices in the house when arguing for or against a particular type of energy renovations being discussed. Now, what they do in the house is heavily gendered. Take Paul and Anne. They were thinking to move to district heating. That move should entail the removal of floor heating in the bathroom. Paul, who rushes out at the house at 5 a.m. to his job at the bakery, was fine with that. Anne, by contrast, tended to spend half an hour in the bathroom, and for her, the floor heating was a key component of anti-meridian comfort. Gender, daily routine, space, and energy intersect. Just in case you're wondering, Paul and Anne managed to find a compromise solution. 
All right, on to some policy recommendations. Or on second thought, it is not immediately clear what such insights mean for those wishing to accelerate the adoption of solar panels or the renovation of homes. However, all these authors do note the poverty of existing approaches, which pin their hope entirely on presenting potential economic benefits and the power of information. Enriching these approaches with a little live reality would be a great first step. One immediate implication is that you take into account the differences within a household instead of treating the household as a unit. At the very least, this could mean identifying and addressing advantages and obstacles for different kinds of uses of home spaces. A more substantial move would be to address the material conditions that prevent women from participating more proactively in all these different kinds of energy transitions. In a world run by resource men, they're about to shed new light on things. And new light is good, as any feminist can tell you. Speaking of feminists, if you are a researcher in energy, maybe you want to read or reread some of the feminist classics? I guess, if not now, when? You know, find some inspiration? Or if whole new books feel like a big ask right now, check out some of the work by your colleagues in development studies who have been working with the gender lens much longer. Find the link in the notes. This is clearly one of those conclusions that ends with, we need more research. More research on this coming up tomorrow. You see, this episode was just a step up to my interview tomorrow with Mariella Feinstra, who incidentally found inspiration in the work of colleagues from development studies and has stuff to share about how useful that can be to understand and tackle energy poverty in the global north. Till then, stay safe. But it wouldn't be nothing, nothing without a woman or a girl. I hope I won't get slapped for copyright infringement. This is fair use, right? <laughs>